Good morning. And that's our prayer, is that the Lord would speak to us through his word this morning and uh, make us come alive through his word. All right, well, um, my name is Brian McKenzie, and I have the privilege to serve here at the Potter's House as one of the elders and to teach a couple times a month as well on Sunday morning. Um, and for some of you, I know we, we, we throw out these terms, elders, and that kind of thing. You're like, what in the world is that? Well, here's another one for you. I'm one of the, the pastors here at the Potter's House. There's actually seven of us. Did you know we had seven pastors here at the Potter's House? We have seven pastors, and Jay's not one of them. Did you all know that? That throws everybody off. Jay has special gifts. He would see, we don't get all this, but he is, we would consider a New Testament evangelist is not what you're thinking. He goes and supports and helps churches. That's what a New Testament evangelist does. Um, but he also has a teaching gift, and we, as the elders slash pastors, it's synonymous in the New Testament. All right, this is exact, you, I can show you five different places in the New Testament, it's exactly the same word. It, it means the exact same group of men. Elders and pastors are the same. So uh, that those everybody also know, but, but we've asked Jay to use his te- one of his gifts, which is teaching, to help minister to our body. And I know it just, just, just blows your mind when we say Jay's not one of the pastors. He's not. He, but he is one of our teachers, right? And we have seven pastors or elders. I'll better use the term elders. I'm really going to throw you off, right? But that's just a, a, a continual explanation how the New Testament church is, is structured, and I have a privilege of serving in, in that role as well. Well, um, I do want to acknowledge, you know, when, when we all come here uh, on Sunday mornings to gather to worship together through prayer, through song, uh, through the ministry of the Word, we, uh, um, we come with all kinds of things, background from our week. It's been a tough week. It's been a great week. It's a it, crazy morning, whatever it might be. I realize that, and I, I, I'm completely, this was a, a crazy morning for us at our home, and so those are things that we all come with, and I'm completely aware of that. It's also um, heartache that happens during the week, um, along with great things. And I just want to acknowledge and encourage you all to please be praying for, for the Hofer family and the Flowers, who are part of our body. Sherry lost her dad this week, who's also Julie Flowers' um, twin brother, and they're part of our body. And just, just we've got to remember that. We've got to keep praying for each other and supporting each other, and, and we, we love you all, uh, the Hofers and Flowers, and are sorry for your loss. Probably not the best way to start off uh, getting me going here, but I just, we, we love you all, and that's what the body of Christ is for, isn't it? To come around each other and support each other and love each other through, through, through those times of loss. And even though we know he's celebrating with the Lord Jesus right now, it's hard on us, hard on those that we love that are left behind. And, um, but there's hope. We don't, we don't grieve without hope, do we? We can grieve, and that's okay, but we don't grieve without hope. So I want to encourage you um, to take your Bible. I don't, I don't think that our, there it goes, okay. Uh, we are continuing our study this morning in Paul's two letters to Timothy in a, title, in a, in a series titled, Be Strong in Grace. And um, this is part 48, as you can see here, Ashamed or Not Ashamed, taken from 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. And before we look at these verses for us this morning, I just wanted to do a little review. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Jay taught on the importance of guarding the gospel. And then last week, Chad, uh, one of our other elders here, reminded us of the truth that Jay pointed out from 2 Kings 22 that was 
very sobering, if you remember that. It was the fact that the book of the law, all right, the book of the law, or God's word, had been lost to the nation of Israel for 57 years until one of Josiah's scribes found it working in the temple, and they found it. Can you imagine being without God's word for 57 years? Uh, they had not guarded God's word. They had not guarded God's plan to rescue people from the power, from the, the, from the penalty of power and the presence of sin. They, they had lost that. They didn't guard it. And how sad that that good news of God's redemption plan was neglected and many people suffered for it. And in 2 Timothy 1, 3-14, Paul exhorted Timothy to guard the gospel, the good news of God's rescue plan. He did this because Paul knew he was encouraging Timothy because Paul knew this. He knew that if the, if the gospel was not guarded, it would be neglected and eventually lost. And we may, they may, may, we might, he may wind up, we may wind up, just like the nation of Israel, without God's word for 57 years or maybe beyond that. We've got to passionately and actively guard the gospel. And it takes work to do this. It, it takes work. It, it, it takes grit I love that word. Maybe that's a kind of that word's kind of become more popular now. I love, I love the word grit. The word grit uh, simply means perseverance, which is motivated by passion for something or someone. Perseverance motivated by passion for something, and, and that's and so. Guarding the gospel is not easy. It's going to take grit. This is why Chad taught what he did last week. Chad taught on the importance of the work it takes to guard the gospel. When he did this, if you were here last week from Philippians uh, 2, 12 through 13, which says this, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for, is it, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, when it comes to these two verses, I always like that, to ask the following question. Who's working? Who is working? You or God? Now don't, don't, don't answer. I ask that question sometimes and people get all excited and they get eager and they answer the question, they answer it wrong. Okay, who's working? You or God? The answer is yes. That's the answer. We are at work because God is at work in us. You are at work. We're at work. We're not just, we don't do anything we do. We're working. Why? Because God is at work in us. We are working out what God has already worked in us. So how is it that he works in us? Uh, Paul tells us in the second half of verse 13, if you look there, both to will and to work. To work, that's to do, that's acting. All right? And then, and for his good pleasure. So this will, all right, is the desire, all right, as a desire to will and to work, this is the ability, the power to get something done. So he, he gives us the desire and power to do what he calls us to do. And one of those things is to guard the gospel. He gives us the desire and power to guard the gospel. Remember, when it comes to guarding the gospel, it's going to take grit. It takes grit. Perseverance, which is motivated by passion for ultimately the gospel, ultimately for God and his glory. So if we're to guard the gospel well, we must rely on the desire and power that God gives us to do that. 
So with that review, uh, it helps us kind of put in context where we're going this morning. Uh, let's, let's now turn to our passage of Scripture this morning, which is found in 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. Would you stand with me as we read this together? 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagelus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Lord, we do trust that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, help us understand not only what these verses mean, what you want to speak to us through these verses, but Lord, how they impact our life. And then empower us, Lord, by your grace in us to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, this is the elephant in the room here. We, this is one of those um, passages of Scripture. If I ask someone, hey, would you read this for us? I'm just going to ask you to come up here and read this for us. You would probably not volunteer. It's got three of those nice names that we like to read in the Bible. All right, and here's the tr trick. I think I've told you this before. Just read it with confidence. Nobody will never know. And in reality, we don't know exactly how they pronounce them. Phagellus, Hermogenes, Onesiphorus. All right, that's, that's the best we can do. Just say it with confidence. Those are the names there we're going to look at there, here this morning. Before we look at these, these verses, I want to remind us of something very important. Remember that Paul is writing to a weary and discourage Timothy. We, we have to keep that in mind when we're reading this letter. Paul is writing. He's in prison. All right, He's in his last legs, in a sense, his last days. He's in prison. He's writing to a weary and discouraged Timothy. And he's encouraging him to, to, to hang in there through the difficulty and discouragement that, that he, he's just experiencing. It's what, it, the biggest point here, he's, he's just saying, hang in there, Timothy. You can do it. Remember, he's encouraging. He's putting courage in Timothy to hang in there. Specifically, not to be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul who's in prison. Oh, let, let me remind us that the, the theme, uh, it, this theme of not being ashamed is all throughout chapter 1. I pointed this out a few weeks ago. It's so important because it ties the whole chapter together, this idea of not being ashamed. We saw it in, in verse 8. If you have your Bibles, hope you do have a copy of God's Word and you have it opened. I'm not just looking up here all the time. I have it because I'm going to refer to some other things that I won't have up here. So, but if you look at verse 8, um, Paul first gives Timothy a personal exhortation. He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. That's a personal exhortation to Timothy not to be ashamed. And then in verse 12, Paul presents himself as an example with these words. And I am not ashamed. And then, we just read here in verse 16, um, the, from our passage this morning, Paul presents a man they both, uh, they both knew, named Onesiphorus, as an example, and says of him, and he was not ashamed. Timothy, don't be ashamed. I am not ashamed. He was not ashamed. This ties the whole chapter together and helps us understand what in the world are these verses 15 through 18 here for. There, there's a purpose it helps us see how they relate to the rest of the chapter. So after exhorting Timothy again to not to be ashamed, setting himself an example of not being ashamed, Paul will now in verses 15 through 18 give two different examples regarding the idea of ashamed. He's going to give a negative example and a positive example. Verse 15 is the negative example. It's those who are ashamed. 
verses 16 through 18 is the positive example, those who are unashamed. And I think we'll see this clearly this morning. And the question we want to answer as we're looking at these verses from God's word this morning is this. Are you ashamed or unashamed? Where are you? Which camp do you find yourself in in these examples? Are you ashamed or are you unashamed? And if you're ashamed, we want to let you know how you can be unashamed. And if you're unashamed right now or not ashamed, we want to let you and encourage you to continue to be unashamed this morning from God's word. So, so FYI, this morning, this morning's passage of scripture is really simple. It, 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 it's not one of those, you know, walk away, man, I have no idea what Paul was trying to say there. I mean, that's just one of those head scratchers. I mean, what in the world? And there's some things that Paul says sometimes are head scratchers. You're like, what in the world was Paul talking about? I'm telling you, this morning, when, when I show you how this ties together, you won't walk away and say, that, that, man, that was just one of those mysteries. It's very simple. Simple in the sense that it's simple to understand what he's calling us to, but profound in putting into action. Isn't that true with most of God's word? This is a big word I'll throw out there. It's it, the purposecutive scripture. It's, it means that the scripture is clear. God doesn't fumble around and make things unclear. Yes, there's some difficult things there, but the main message of the Bible is not unclear. And I love, I, 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 um, I love what was said years and years ago by Mark Twain. It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give me problems. It's the parts of the Bible that I do. And this is one of those. We're not gonna, nobody, nobody should walk out here and say, I didn't understand that. No, it's, hey, God, we need your help to apply it. Because it's so clear when we see what, when we look at these passages this morning. So let's examine these words. And as we examine uh, 2 Timothy 2, 15 through 18, we're going to see two examples, all right? If you're a note taker again, um, two examples Paul gives to encourage and exhort Timothy. The example of, of the ashamed, verse 18, as I mentioned, and the example of the unashamed, verses 16 through 18. So look, look at, with me again at verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. All right, in these words, the Lord through Paul presents the example of the ashamed. Paul first indicates that Timothy is a well, well aware of this happening. Look what he says. He says, you are aware of this fact. So Timothy's not caught off guard, all right, when, when he reads these words that all who are in Asia turned away from me. So I want us to first ask and answer this question. What is Paul referring to by the statement, turned away from me? Your translation might say, deserted. What's he referring to there? Now the word here that's used sometimes is speaking of those who turn away from the faith. They apostatize. This is the word that's here. Okay, But it can also mean just being turned away from anything. And context dictates what it's talking about. Right? I think the context here is a personal desertion or turning away from Paul and not necessarily turning away from believing the gospel. I think we'll see that here in our passage. I think he's talking about people who turned away from believing the gospel. Now, they, they still believe the gospel. They did turn away from something, for sure turned away from Paul. I, I think that the context points that they're, they're ashamed of the gospel in some way. doesn't mean they don't believe it. Let's just make that real clear. Because if we're all honest in here, if I said, who's ever been ashamed of the gospel? If we're all honest, we'd raise our hand. You're like, what are you talking about? Not me. I've never been ashamed of the gospel. Well, have you ever hesitated in sharing the gospel with somebody and not share the gospel with them when you knew you should have? 
Anybody want to raise your hand there with me? Me, I, yeah, yeah, all of us have. Yeah, that's being ashamed of the gospel in some way, right? So we, we've all been. So we can all say, I've, I've been there. I, and so we've got to be careful here. These are people who have in some way are ashamed of the gospel. They've turned away in that way. They've, they've left or deserted Paul. Um, so they, they were most likely ashamed and deserted Paul because they didn't want to be associated with someone in prison. I mean, to be associated with someone in prison, especially in this day, was not a good thing because you might end up there with them. So maybe they were ashamed because remember, Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me. Right? So some of these people may have been ashamed or they've turned away, they've walked away, they deserted Paul because they don't want to be associated because they're in prison. Some were most likely ashamed about the offense of the gospel. What do I mean about the offense of the gospel? Think about that. That doesn't sound offense of the gospel. Doesn't the word gospel mean good news? Yes, but there's an offense in the message of the gospel. So what do I mean? God is love. There's no doubt about that. And he was motivated by his love for us in his rescue plan from sin. We all, we, we know that. Hopefully you know that. If not, I'm telling you, he was motivated by love. We know this from one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, it's clear that, that God loved us. Here's what I like about John 3.16. Look what it says. For God so loved. Not any ordinary kind of love. He so loved the world. Amazing kind of love he's, that, that John's talking about here. And, and, and notice that, that, that the recipients of this is the world. God so loved the world. Who, who is the world? Who or what is he speaking of here? It carries the idea of both Jew and Gentile. Now, many people reading this on, when it was written would not have had any problem with that God so loved the Jews, but they would have a problem with God loved the Gentiles. And then throwing the Samaritans with that, whew, even more. You're kidding. They, he loved them too? Yes, he did. Some means he loved them. Some means he loved them. That's the world. But it also has, and most often the word world in John's writings, and mostly even in the New Testament as a whole, is speaking about fallen humanity and the world system that's rejected God. Think about that. God so loved the world. The world that hated him. The world that rejected his plan. The world that pridefully walked away from him. That, that, think about that. Think about how more, much more powerful that sounds now. For God so loved the world. Romans 5, 8 says this. All right? That God shows his love or demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not love the world because the world was lovable. God so loved the world. Wow, what a love that is. And yes, God, is his love, we, can, we can't even fathom. This is the most profound verse in all of Scripture. I'm telling you what, when I preached on this one time, I was, I was more overwhelmed about preaching on this simple truth than anything I've ever preached in my life. This is, this is it right here. This truth, for God so loved the world. You're like, we're supposed to be in 1 Timothy, but I'm trying to get to the offense of the gospel here, okay? Why people may somebody be ashamed. Because to get to this place, so God so loved the world, a world that was sinful, and we all fall in that category. If you remember back in 1 Timothy 1.15, this statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not righteous people. Here's the offense of the gospel. In order for us to receive the gift that he gave in his son, we first have to admit that we're sinful and that our sin separates us from God. 
Our, 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 our sin puts us justly under the just wrath of God. That's where we're placed. We're by nature children of wrath, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. That's the offense of the gospel. The offense of the gospel, we first have to say, hold on. I'm sinful and I'm not right with God. And he just, his, just, his just wrath is set on me because I'm guilty. I'm guilty. We have to admit that. That's an offense. And when we can admit that, then we can receive this gift. He gave his son. He gave his son in our place to be the substitute for our sin. Wow, what love is this? In 1 John, behold, what manner of love is this that we should be called the children of God? Amazing what he did. But there's an offense in that, right? There is. And some people here in Paul's day that may have left or deserted him, it may have become, been because of this very fact. There's an offense in the gospel. And when maybe they've shared it with somebody and somebody goes, who are you calling a sinner? I'm good with God. That's how Jesus, that's some of the response Jesus got from the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day, right? No, we're good with God. I mean, we're Abraham's children. I mean, we've we got to write the right resume, the right pedigree. We're good. But as long as you think you're good, you're going to be bad. You're going to be in trouble. But there's an offense here, and many of them in Paul's day must have thought, you know, I'm, I'm just done with the whole offense part of it. I just can't handle the rejection anymore. I'm, or I'm most embarrassed of, of, of this part of the gospel. Now, I, I, I think I've shared this with you all before, guys. It's so important. I know some of you heard me say this. If, if I'm repeating myself, it's worth it. Okay, when I went to buy her diamond ring before we got married, her engagement ring, I, I, I studied up on, I didn't know, I didn't know what, anything about diamonds. You know, I know there's going to be a lot of money. And so I went looking and they said, show me the smallest diamond you got. No, I'm kidding. Show me, uh, and I, they said, so they laid this diamond. They said, okay, we got to look at cut and clarity and carrot and help me out the rest of you. Okay, I can't remember. all. It was like five C's or whatever. And they hold this thing up and they're telling me all these things. But I'm looking and they showed another one. I'm like, I mean, it just, they all look the same. Some of them are bigger, but you know, they all look the same until they put them on that piece of black velvet. And then boom, the diamond just popped. And you could see the difference in the diamonds then. And that's what it is with the gospel. Until we see the fact that God so loved the world is dropped on the background of sin, it doesn't pop. We don't see our need for a Savior without that. So, hey, it is offensive, but isn't it beautiful when you see it? Yeah. Others most likely were ashamed of what their association might cost them in the world. All right? It may cost them if they're associated with the gospel of Paul. Like a guy named Demas, we'll see him later in 2 Timothy. Look what it says. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. So, so Demas, he, he deserted because, hold on, I'm giving up some stuff here to be associated with the gospel and Paul. Maybe I'm losing some cash here. And, and, and now we don't know about the other guys, probably not all of them deserted for the wrong reason, especially because we know who Titus is, he went to Dalmatia. Maybe some of them just went because they had other assignments for ministry. But, but, but the issue here is, is Paul is feeling alone. This context in 2 Timothy 1.15, it's just that the, the, the majority of the people here were like Demas and like these other two guys he names. They had left because they were ashamed of the gospel in some way. They were ashamed of Paul and his unwavering stance when it came to the gospel. They, they were ashamed of, of this fact that he was so unwavering in his stance that he landed him in prison, and they didn't want to go to be in prison either. They were ashamed in some way. 
So let's ask and answer uh, this next question. To whom is Paul referring when he writes, all in Asia, all right, all who are in Asia, all right, have deserted me? All. Is he referring to every follower of Christ in Asia? He says all, right? Doesn't all mean all? Not all the time. Obviously, all of them had not turned away from him because Onesiphorus, he's going to introduce in the next, next, next verse, is from Ephesus, which is in Asia. All, every single one of Christ's followers had not deserted Paul. And Timothy, who was also in Asia, hadn't deserted Paul. So then if all doesn't mean every single person or every follower of Christ, what is Paul emphasizing here? He's emphasizing the fact that a lot of people had turned away from or deserted him. And we already read that in 2 Timothy 4.10. 2 Timothy 4.16, which we'll see later, says, At my defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it never not be counted against them. So all who are in Asia here, it, it's a hyperbole. It's a natural exaggeration for emphasis. Paul feels as if all in Asia turned away to desert him. Have you ever felt like that, that you were all alone? You ever felt, you ever felt like that? You were all alone, but you really weren't, but, but you felt like that. It was so heavy. Your feeling of aloneness was so heavy, you felt alone. Uh, Jay, a few weeks ago, used it, uh, the illustration of Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and he felt that he was all alone. After this amazing thing with, with the prophets of uh, Baal and, and God had defeated him, then not too long after that, he's feeling alone. All right? And he's the only one standing for the Lord now. And the Lord reminded him later on in that chapter that he had preserved 7,000 others who had not bowed to bow. You're not alone. And sometimes we just need to hear, you're not alone. Paul's feeling alone. He's been deserted. He's hurting. And to emphasize this fact, he names a couple of the guys. All right? Phygelus and Hermogenes. And the New Testament doesn't mention these guys anymore. This is it. This is the only mention we have. We don't know much about them. Perhaps they were leaders who were once close to Paul and their, their abandonment was personally hurtful to him. That's a possibility. Timothy would have known who these guys were because he mentions the name to Timothy. Timothy knew exactly. He knew why. We don't know. But Paul mentions him because it's, he, these two guys leaving made him feel even more alone. All, all in Asia have left me, have deserted me, have turned away. A man that invested in my life, probably the most, I mentioned his name before, most influential man in my life outside of my dad, a guy named Bob Warren, um, once told me when it comes to the gospel and all that goes with that, if you're going to stand for the truth, Brian, I remember looking at me right in the eyes, you've got to be willing to stand alone. If you're going to stand for the truth, you have to be willing to stand alone. You've got to be willing. It doesn't mean you will, but you've got to be willing. And I was walking through a rough part, part in my life at that time. I needed to hear that because I felt alone. He said, Brian, he didn't come. Oh, it's okay, Brian, you're not alone. He said, hey, if you're going to stand for the truth here, then, Brian, you've you got to be willing to stand alone. And we're, of course, never alone, but there will be times, just like Paul and Timothy, at, at this point in Timothy's life, that we're going to feel like it. We're here in verse 15, Paul, in an attempt to encourage Timothy not to be ashamed of him or the gospel and to keep gardening, gives an example of the ashamed. Ba Paul is basically saying to Timothy, don't be that guy. Timothy, don't be that guy. Don't be the ashamed guy. 
Don't be like these guys. Although weak and weary and discouraged and downtrodden, Timothy, you don't want to be that guy. You just don't want to be that guy. I believe that Timothy, he desired, he didn't want to be that guy. He didn't want to be ashamed. And neither should we. There's nothing noble about being ashamed of the gospel. There's nothing noble about that or the possible consequences that come from believing and proclaiming the gospel. There's nothing noble about being ashamed. That's easy. And, and, and Paul knows that, and he's exhorting Timothy, don't be the, that guy. Remember that God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in us to give us the power to believe, proclaim, guard, and live out the gospel in a world that so desperately needs it. He is. He's there. He's in us. And that's what he's exhorting Timothy to do here. Now look with me again in verses 16 through 18. All right, we're just going to read them again. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my change. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. In these words, the Lord through Paul presents the example of the unashamed. Here in verse 16, Paul now brings up this man who we've mentioned already, Onesiphorus. His, word, his, his name means this. Right? This, this, I love this. This is what his name means. Help bringer. Help bringer. That's what Onesiphorus means. That's easy, it's a little easier to say. It's weird. All right? Help bringer. But he's a help bringer, and he lives up to his name. His name's, he's also mentioned in 419 of this same letter that Paul writes. He is the example of the unashamed. Paul is so impressed with Onesiphorus that he expresses his desire for the Lord to grant him mercy two times in our passage. Look at this. All right? Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy. The Lord grant mercy to him. And in verse 18, the Lord grant him to find mercy. Verse 18. He's so impressed. He says, Lord, Lord, man, I just pray he finds mercy. Lord, bless this guy really good. He's so impressed with him. So why is Paul so impressed by this man, and why is he the example of the unashamed. Thankfully, Paul tells us in his words, look at those words in verse 16. He refreshed me. It mean, this word means to revive with cool breezes. Now, we've had a lot of cool breezes lately, haven't we? But how, how about those hot summer days out on the lake and it's like hope, oppressive heat? And all of a sudden, this cool breeze just comes through. You're like, oh, that's what this word is. He refreshes me. He revives me with cool breezes. And this could mean physically, maybe bringing food or water. It, it could refer to refreshing him spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And I think it's both, um, all of the above. Notice the extent, all right? Notice the extent of the frequency of Onesiphorus' refreshment of Paul. We see it in the word often. It seems that Onesiphorus did not just visit Paul once and refresh him, but he did it multiple times. He often refreshed me. Now, I read about this, this guy, Onesiphorus, here. I think about uh, Philemon, who, who Paul said refreshed others. Look what he says in Philemon 1.7. For I have come to have much joy in you and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Look at that. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. I think this is what Onesiphorus did for Paul as well. I don't know about you, but I want to be like a Nesiphorus in Philemon. I want to be a refresher of people's hearts. That's, that's what I want to be. 
I want to be who someone comes in. I want to be the cool breeze in someone's day. Because I know I need people to be that for me. And I know that's why God's given us people. That we can be Onessa forces for each other. Help bringers. Refreshers. To each other. That's, that's what I want to be. And I pray you do too. Well, Onessa force is not only the example of the unashamed because he often refreshed Paul. But notice what else Paul holds up as an example of the unashamed in verse 16 and 17, was not ashamed of my chains, but when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. While Paul was in prison in Rome, Onesiphorus eagerly searched for Paul and he found him. The fact that he eagerly searched points to the fact that Paul's imprisonment now was not like Acts 28, when lots of people could come and go and everybody knew where Paul was. Think about this. He eagerly searched. He had to find Paul. It reminds us, and we see these other places in, in 2 Timothy, that Paul's imprisonment now was not country club at all. It was a lot harder. And they, they didn't let people know where he was. You had to go find him. And maybe even the Christians weren't letting people know where he was because they didn't want to be associated with him for fear of being in the same place he was. But, but Onesiphorus, he sought him out. With all these obstacles and potential danger, Onesiphorus kept searching until he found him. And then he didn't just go visit him once. We saw this. He went and visited him often. This highlights the fact that Onesiphorus was not ashamed. He was willing to risk whatever it was to be able to get to Paul and refresh him. The stigma of being associated with someone who was in prison because of the gospel, that didn't even phase Onesiphorus. He said, bring it on, because I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. He was not ashamed to be associated with Paul. Onesiphorus was not self-preserving of his life or his reputation. He wasn't looking and going, I'm going to look out for mine. My, my son played in his high school football career in Texas, 6A football, and down to the south of Texas. His sophomore year was on the varsity, a super talented team. He got in every once in a while. Special teams, was a holder, a couple of backup spots, a quarterback. But that was it. But they were super talented. Probably had eight guys on that team that could have, should have gone Division I. I think one did. And at halftime of a team, they were getting their tails whipped by, that they should have been whipping their tails. At halftime, here's what happened. My son came home. He couldn't believe it. He said, you wouldn't believe what happened. They're already down by two or three touchdowns. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get mine tonight. I don't care if we win. I'm going to get mine. These guys weren't like a Nessa Forest. He wasn't about, I'm going to get mine. I'm here for the team. I'm here because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm here to help Paul. That was his heart. He was going to get God's, in a sense. Now look at the first half of verse 18 with me. The Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. We've already mentioned this. Paul actually makes a play on words here at the end of verse 17 and beginning of verse 18. I, I, want, I want to show you this. All right, Can you see that circle there? I circled found there in verse 17 and find in verse 18. He's, he's, there's a play on words here. Um, Onesiphorus had worked hard to find Paul and show him mercy, and Paul wanted Onesiphorus now to find mercy from the Lord. Hey, this guy worked hard to find me. Lord, I, I, my, my prayer is that he'll find mercy, too, from the Lord on that day. It's just a play on words. Notice when he wanted Onesiphorus, when it was he wanted Onesiphorus to find mercy from the Lord on that day. 
on that day. We notice this same phrase in verse 12. We'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, The crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That day. This is referring to the judgment seat of Christ. All right? Where, where all believers, those who know Christ, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And everything we've done in faith for the glory of God will be rewarded. Paul wants this unashamed man to be blessed real good on that day. That's his heart for Anessa Force. He'd be blessed real good because he was unashamed. Now look at the, the last part of verse 18. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. This was not Anessa Force's first rodeo when it came to being service to others. He tells Timothy, you, you know what he did in Ephesus. You, you know what he did there. He, this is not out of character for Anessa Force. This is what he always does. He's just a man who's unashamed, who's willing to put others before himself. Serving others marked his life. Onesiphorus reminds me of another man who visited Paul in, in one of his, Paul's earlier imprisonments, and was he who's also unashamed. A guy named, here's another name for you, Epaphroditus. All right, we got Onesiphorus, now we got a name Epaphroditus. All right, and, 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 and Epaphroditus, um, notice what Paul says to him about him in, in Ephesians 2.30. Because he came close to death, He's talking to Epaphroditus of the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. And what made Epaphroditus and Onesimus, Onesiphorus, uh, um, uh, so great examples um, uh, uh, is the fact that they were unashamed. They were unashamed, and they put others before themselves. Instead of being self-preserving of their lives and of their own reputations, they lived out what Paul charged the church at Philippi to do earlier in this passage. In fact, I think this, these two verses here are the theme of all of Philippians chapter 2. All right? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. This is what made Epaphroditus, that he's, talk, who's, he's talking about Philippi, it, 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 when he's writing to the church of Philippi, and Onesiphorus here in 1 Timothy, this is what set them apart. They were living out this principle of selfless humility, putting others before themselves. And where would they even get this idea? Where would Paul get this idea that we should put others before ourselves? I mean, isn't that crazy to put others before yourself? Well, guess what? If you just keep reading this passage right here, look where he got the idea. Have this attitude. What attitude? Selfless humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also, help me, what does it say? In, in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not, did not regard equality a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being found in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. That's where he got the idea. And that's also, by the way, where we get the power to do this, because this ties back into what Chad taught last week. Just go down about four more verses. And why do we work? Because God works in us. We have the power to be like Onesiphorus, to put others before ourselves, to refresh others, to, to not any, to get anything getting away from, of us that would make us ashamed of the gospel. We can be unashamed in every way when it comes to the gospel and guarding it and sharing it, proclaiming it, and living it. We can because God lives in us. This selfless, courageous attitude is how Onesiphorus lived his life, empowered by God, the Holy Spirit in him. I, I just need to say this. Someone in here, it won't be me, 
It won't be some of you, but someone in here needs to name their next son Onesiphorus. I'm telling you, this guy, that's, what a name. Help bringer. Or just name him help bringer. All right, it'll be okay when they get, hey, is help bringer here today in school? Hey, help bringer. Onesiphorus. Somebody needs to name their kid after Onesiphorus. If not, my wife will make me name my next dog after it. That's how we got our dog, Josiah. All right. And this guy's awesome. Onesiphorus, the, the power of, by the power of God, the Holy Spirit in him was unashamed of the gospel. He was unashamed of the stigma that came with being associated with Paul. He was unashamed to the point to put himself in prison that may bring an unwanted ridicule or persecution. He was unashamed. He is the example of being unashamed. Don't we want to all be like Onesiphorus? I hope so. I hope so. Timothy would do well to follow Onesiphorus' example. That's what Paul's doing here. Hey, look at this guy, and you know him. He's got the same God of the universe living inside of him that you do. You can do it, Timothy. Potter's house, you can do it. We can do it. We can be unashamed because the same God that lived in Onesiphorus lives in us. Isn't that good news? That's great news. Well, so what? What difference does all this make? What's he so excited about? How can we respond to God's word this morning? Well, what are the implications or some of the implications from this text this morning? I'm going to give you five. There's more, but I'm going to give you five. All right, here we go. All right, number one, if you are going to stand for the gospel, be willing to stand alone. We, we got to know that. All right. Number two, Rely on God's strength to be and remain unashamed of the gospel and the hardships that may come with it. Rely on God's strength, not our strength. We'll fail if we rely on our strength. Number three, remember the power of God for salvation is in the message of the gospel, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, salvation is found in the gospel. If we're ashamed of the gospel and we quit sharing the gospel for whatever reason, then there's no salvation outside of the gospel. Number four, by God's strength, follow the example of those who are unashamed. Follow the, look, look at Anessa Forrest, man, this guy, unbelievable. Epaphroditus. These kind of guys, they're worthy. Paul says about Epaphroditus, this guy is worthy of honor. He says earlier in, in, in Philippians. And lastly, at least this one, I surround yourself with others who are unashamed. Find some people like Onesiphorus. And, and I want to do this. I want to do this for, for a reason. All right? I want to get down here at least look in the eye. We need people who we can look in the eye. And we need people who will look us in the eye. I need people like that in my life. You need people like that in your life to look you in the eye. He said, hey, hang in there, Brian. Hang in there, Curtis. Hang in there. Hang in there, Derek. Hang in there, Sean. And I need God in my life. It'll say, hey, Brian, hang in there. I'm so thankful that God's given me men in my life for so long that have done that. They've also said, hey, Brian, I'm concerned about you. I'm seeing some things that are concerning. And they get down and they look me in the eye. And they tell me they love me enough. Say, hey, it's time to buck up, buddy. You're better than that. 
And I need to be able to look other guys in the eye and say the same thing. And you ladies, you need that. We all need Onesiphorus in our life to encourage us, to remind us, hey, don't be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed about. Hang in there. Don't you need that? I do. I pray you have it. If not, you need to find it. If you're not involved in one of the small groups in our church, we need to start about 20 more, I can tell you that. We'll start more small groups. We need small groups. If you're not meeting with some ladies or meet some guys, you need to because this world's tough and it's easy to get weary and it's easy to let some of these things that I talked about early make us be ashamed of the gospel. But remember, there's no salvation outside of the gospel. And God chose to use us to share it to the world. We need, we need to surround our people, ourselves with people who are unashamed. Well, when we're done here, again, there's going to be people down here who can pray with you, pray for you, answer questions you might have about finding some people like a Nessa Forest in your life, about following Jesus. Pray you take care of that um, and, and, and to take advantage of that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, Lord. These simple little verses here at the end of chapter 1, how profound they are. Yes, they're simple, Lord. I said that. I know it's not hard to understand, Lord. We can either be ashamed or unashamed. And, Lord, we need Onesa forces in our life. We need people around us to encourage not to be ashamed. Lord, we know what's at stake. So, Lord, help us by your spirit in us to be those who are unashamed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And I'm going to read this over us today, just as God's blessing to us, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you.